Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Catalyst. My name is JR. I'm the teaching pastor here. And I wanted to tell you this morning as we're getting started about a story where I fought the law and won. Uh, when we first moved to Texas, which has been uh, almost nine years ago now, we lived in Mesquite. And the little neighborhood where we lived, we were about a block away from an elementary school, which meant, of course, that the main road outside of our neighborhood was the school zone. One, one morning, I was leaving the house, and I just kind of forgot, because uh, I work from home, and frankly, I don't leave the house very much, uh, really, especially not in the mornings. And so I pulled out onto the main road, and it was during the time that the school zone was active, and I just, I forgot, because the signs that tell you, you know, warning you're in a school zone are on either end of, like, the, where my little turnout into the main road is. So I just did, you know, I didn't see one of them, and I forgot. So I was going like 30, which is under the, under the normal speed limit, 35, but of course, really far over the school limit speed zone. So I got pulled over, I got a ticket, and I decided, you know what, they're probably going to make me pay this ticket, but I'm just going to try to plead my case and say, uh, I know that I was speeding, but I, I forgot that it wasn't a school zone, or that I was in a school zone, because there's no signage on our little road warning us that you're about to pull out into a school zone. So I took my, I think I, was, I think I was using a Windows phone at the time. That's how long ago this was, right? Um, uh, I took my phone camera and I went out and I like, took pictures of where the turnout is onto the main road and where the school zone signs are and I printed them out you know, and edited them with all these like, you know, it looked like an NFL recap where I was doing like line, circles and arrows and all, you know. And I had them in my manila folder and I went to court and then when I came up, you know, it was my turn, the judge called me up, and uh, I started, <clears throat> I started, you know, and he said, uh, I just need to know whether you're pleading guilty or not guilty. And I said, oh, uh, not guilty. He said, okay, we're going to set a trial date for like a month from now. And I was like, oh, okay. Uh, so then I, I just went home, and uh, this is the part that's a little sad for me. They just, dis I got a letter in like two weeks that said they dismissed my case. And through I didn't have to pay the ticket, but I also, I didn't get to Perry Mason or Matlock or... Yeah, I didn't get to have a jury trial like in my dreams and say, I'm putting this system on trial or something like that, yeah. Um, but I was thinking about that story as I was, I was working on what we're going to be talking about today because I was, I was betting on being able to plead for mercy because I had genuinely broken the law out of ignorance, right? Uh, I was not intentionally speeding through a school zone. I try not to do that. I Love the idea of keeping kids safe and not hitting them with cars, right? Big fan of that policy that we have in our society. Uh, and so, I, I, again, I, I, hadn't, I, I genuinely had committed this offense out of ignorance. And, and I know that in our legal system, we distinguish between uh, crimes or, or, or breaches of law that are done on purpose and then when they're done out of ignorance. Uh, not necessarily... Uh, completely expunging, right? I, I thought maybe they would reduce the fine I would pay or something, you know, something, right? I was, I was counting on the idea that there's room in our system for mercy, uh, particularly when a crime is committed out of ignorance. Now, that's our legal system, which we all know is deeply flawed and has all kinds of problems, right? Uh, so if that's how our system works, and I think we all sort of understand and recognize that it's good that we don't treat all breaches of law the same, that context matters, then when it comes to this question of where people spend eternity, we know that there are millions of people throughout history and around the world who have died, who have never gotten the chance to know Jesus, 
They never had a chance to hear about Jesus. No one ever told them. Maybe they died before Jesus was ever born, right? Maybe they lived in some part of the world where people who had heard the good news about Jesus' resurrection could not possibly have reached them in the, in the you know, centuries after Jesus was raised from the dead. Maybe they were people who were introduced to Jesus, but they were introduced to Jesus at the end of a sword or the end of a spear or the end of a gun, right? A, a false image of Jesus. And then those people die, and then again, I think traditionally a lot of Christians have said those people get sent to hell because they didn't ever know Jesus. And yet, that doesn't feel quite right to us. It doesn't feel fair. It doesn't feel just. It doesn't feel loving. It doesn't feel any of the things that we normally associate with God, especially as God is revealed to us in the person of Jesus. So today we're going to be asking what happens to people who die who haven't heard about Jesus. Uh, is it true that they really just are condemned to an eternity in hell? Or is it possible that we're thinking about what it means to be saved all wrong? That we're thinking about how God interacts with this world all wrong? That we're, we're missing something key about what God's liberation looks like? I think we are. I think, we're, I think if we come to conclusions that make God unjust or unloving, then we're doing it wrong. Because we know that God is just, and God is loving, and God is good. And so today we're going to take some hard looks at these questions. We're going to see uh, some of the big ideas in Scripture. And we're going to be pressing into some spaces where I hope by the end of today, we feel excited about the possibilities that are before us. The idea that God's mercy might be bigger than we could imagine. That God's love might be more challenging and exciting and all-encompassing than we thought. And that Jesus' good news is truly good. Uh, so we're going to begin today by celebrating God's love for us because... That is what we have to keep in front of us as we move through all of this. I think too often when we ask this question, we start somewhere other than with who God is. And so we're going to begin by celebrating God this morning, by celebrating God's great love for us, so that we can keep that in front of us as we move through the morning. Uh, if you're a guest with us, we want to say that we're so honored to have you with us. We are going to be receiving communion a little bit later in the gathering. So if you're in the building with us, hopefully you got a little communion cup from Sarah as you came in. If not, you can go grab one at some point throughout the morning. If you're virtual with us today, uh, we would love for you to participate with us as well. Just grab something to eat and something to drink, and then we'll have some more instructions for you uh, at the end of the gathering when we receive communion together. But for now, uh, like I said, we're going to begin singing together. So I'm going to hand it over to Nathan and Guhei. I'm going to invite you all to stand with me as we sing together. This summer, we have been centering your questions. We spent the whole spring asking you for questions about God, faith, the Bible, uh, you know, living your faith out in the real world, kind of whatever. We, we said no holds barred, and you responded with some really terrific questions. And so we put them together and have been working through them all summer. And we have a couple of guiding principles that have been really important to understand sort of the goal of these messages. The first is that here at, question, here at Catalyst, we don't think questions are bad. We're not threatened by them. We don't think that they're evidence of a weak faith or something like that. In fact, quite the contrary. We think good questions are a sign of a healthy, vibrant, and growing faith. We think God loves our questions. And so we want to practice asking good questions together. And so in that spirit, our second principle is that these sermons are not designed to be answers necessarily. Uh, we don't imagine that you had a bunch of questions and then we you know, got on the secret red phone to heaven and got the right answers and brought them out and then you don't have any more questions anymore. That's not how this series is working. Uh, quite the opposite. In fact, we think of these messages as the beginnings of conversations, not the ends of conversations. 
uh, mostly what we're doing in these messages is trying to refine the questions that we're asking and ask them better and, and turn to Scripture and see how Scripture engages them so that we can be sure we're asking really, really good questions together and thinking about God and about faith in ways that point us deeper and deeper into Jesus's great love for us. So in that spirit, I want to show you the question that we are asking today. The question that came was, do people who die without hearing about Jesus really go to hell? And if not, then like, shouldn't we not evangelize, right? Uh, it's a great, great set of questions here. Uh, and again, I think the, that first question that, you know, do people who die without hearing about Jesus really go to hell, that, that really gets to our questions about God's justice. Um, how can God possibly punish people for sins that they didn't even know they were committing? That just doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem fair. Uh, that doesn't seem loving. And, and, and you're right. Uh, again, I, I think when we understand God is a God of love and a God of justice, it really presses on our ability uh, to think of a God who punishes people for things that they didn't even know were wrong to be unloving and unjust. It just doesn't square. It causes a lot of I think it causes a lot of anxiety in our own spirits. I, this is a question I get a lot as a pastor, uh, both from people who are believers and people who are not. It just is one of those strange sticking points. And I think on one hand, it's actually a beautiful thing because it comes from the fact that we serve a God who uh, engages in human history in a very specific way. Like we can point to on a calendar and on a map exactly where God entered human history. And so because of that, there is, uh, we, we here in the West even have divided our calendars into before that happened and after that happened, right? And so uh, especially that before that happened uh, gets real hairy. And, and we have all these questions about, well, again, is it fair that God would punish people in the before times who didn't even know, right? So as we're getting into this today, I also want to offer a word of caution. Uh, that are particularly going to carry us through this week and next week. The questions we're exploring today and next week are questions that the writers of the Bible were not particularly interested in. They're questions that keep a lot of us up at night, and they didn't keep them up at night. They had more pressing issues, like the fact that, you know, Rome was trying to execute them and things like that. Um, so what we're doing today and next week is really trying to say, okay, how can we take the things that the Scriptures do do say, and then think about them consistently with what we know about God's character, what we know about who Jesus is, and then sort of like step out into the unknown by faith, right? Um, part of the reason these are such big thorny questions is because scripture, scripture isn't very clear on them. And scripture isn't very clear on them, again, because scripture wasn't particularly interested in those questions, not the way we are. So, uh, so again, more than many of the other sermons we've had in this series, this is the beginning of a conversation, not the end of one. Now, with all of that said, turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Uh, if you grab one of the Bibles out of the back, that's on page 675. Romans is a letter that Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote to a congregation that we could today describe as multi-ethnic. Okay? It was comprised of Jews and non-Jews or Gentiles. Now, the Jewish people, like Paul, were descendants, ethnically descended from a man named Abraham. And so what made them part of the Jewish people was that they were Abraham's descendants. Like, it, it, was, it was a, again, they didn't have genetics, right? But we would say it's like a genetic thing. It's a family tree thing. You can just look back up the family tree, and if Abraham is back up at the top of it, then you're a Jew. If not, 
which is like everyone else in the world, you're a Gentile, right? So I'm a Gentile, you're probably a Gentile, right? It's all the rest of us. And the early church really was having a hard time in the first probably 50 to 100 years after Jesus' resurrection, figuring out how Gentiles got to be part of the Jesus thing. Because Jesus was Jewish, he specifically said, I didn't come to get rid of the Jewish Torah, um, I came to fulfill it, and so do Gentiles have to get circumcised, which was Abraham's uh, marker that he was a faithful person? Does he have to, do, he have to, do they have to keep the dietary code right? No bacon, no cheeseburgers, no shrimp, things like this. And there were a bunch of people who said, yeah, Jesus was Jewish, uh, everyone else was Jewish, Abraham was Jewish, they want to be part of this, they just got to be Jewish. It's, it's simple. It may not be easy, but it's simple, right? And then there were a whole bunch of other people like Paul who said, no, 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 you've got this all wrong. And so the book of Romans is this extended argument that Paul is making to this multi-ethnic church who's trying to figure out how they all live together as not Jews and Gentiles, but as one people of God. And he's making the argument that uh, both Jews and Gentiles are God's children in a way that they can all live together. Uh, this is something, again, for us, we're like, well, yeah, duh, because we're all a bunch of Gentiles who are at church today, right? Um, this feels very blasé to us. I can tell you, in Paul's day, this letter was revolutionary. It was radical. The things that he was saying were provocative. They were shocking to a number of people. And frankly, they're pretty brilliant. Uh, so we're going to work through them. And Romans is 16 chapters long. We're not going to do all of Paul's argument. But I'm going to try to pull out and highlight for you some of the things that Paul says that I think are particularly interesting in light of this question that we have, which is, what about people who never heard about Jesus? Okay? So I want to begin in Romans 1. Uh, we're going to begin in verse 16. And I want you to see here how Paul is talking about how people know God. Okay, here's what he says. Paul says, I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and then also the Gentile. Okay, this good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. Okay, that's how God saves us, how God makes us righteous. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scripture says, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. Okay? Now, but, but God showed his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because God has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky and through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities his eternal power, and his divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. A couple things going on here. First, Paul says, look, all of this is faith, okay? It's not anything we do. It's not getting circumcised. It's not what you eat. It's not any behaviors. It's faith, okay? That's going to come, that's going to be important later. The other thing, and this is what I think is really fascinating, is Paul says, look, everyone, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, knows God because of creation. Now, when I was a kid, I grew up with apologetics, which is where they taught little kids how to do, like, go to school and argue with their science teachers and prove that God is real. And apologists love this verse because what we do is we take it and we say, see, creation, the world, proves that there is a God. Okay? That's not what Paul is saying here. Because Paul did not live in a world where people didn't think that there was a God. Everyone believed in a God. Most people believed in lots of gods. And Paul was writing a letter to the church in Rome, and Rome definitely believed in gods, 
Okay? So when Paul is saying that everyone knows God through creation, Paul is not saying everyone knows that there is a generic God up there somewhere. Paul is saying that creation proves the existence of a very specific God, Yahweh, the one who created the heavens and the earth, the one who became incarnate in Jesus, the one that he's going to be talking about through his entire letter. Okay? Now, again, I think this is maybe more profound than often we realize at first. Paul is arguing that we can know the specific character of the creator through this God's creation. Okay? That, that we can know this God well enough to be held accountable for how we don't follow this God's way. Okay? Not, again, not, oh, creation proves there's a God. Is it Jupiter or Yahweh? Eh, no one knows, okay? but at least we know there's a God. It's not what Paul is arguing. Paul is arguing we can know through creation that Yahweh is God, that Yahweh is the creator. Now, this sermon was originally supposed to be preached by Sonia, who's on our preaching team. Uh, many of you who have been around Catalyst know her. Uh, Sonia is Navajo, and so one of the reasons she wanted to preach this message is because as a Navajo woman, uh, she has a lot invested in this question because the Navajo people were introduced to Jesus at the end of a sword, right? And their religion has been demonized and vilified by missionaries for a long time. And they were made to choose often between being Navajo and being a Christian, as though those two things were somehow mutually contradictory, as though somehow Jesus could not also be Navajo in the same way that he is European, in the same way that he is um, Jewish, in the same way that he is Chinese, in the same way that he is incarnate in all cultures. So as Sonia and I were talking about this um, before she had to step away for, uh, I mean, I, again, I think a lot of you know what's going on with her family. Uh, before she had to step away from this message, she taught me about this particular Navajo principle called hojo. Uh, it's one of the most important principles in Navajo religion. And the idea of hojo is the idea of living in harmony with the creator's world. Okay? So a person who is walking in hojo is someone who is walking in harmony with, the, with creator and with creator's world. The, idea, the more she talked about hojo and this principle of hojo, the more it reminded me of the Hebrew term chokmah, okay? Hebrew uh, has this term chokmah, which is uh, an idea that was pretty common in the ancient Near East. We see versions of it in Egyptian religions and in some of the Canaanite religions. But it, uh, the idea of chokmah is that God created the world to operate in a certain way, and uh, in the same way that animals and plants uh, follow certain logic, what we might call today natural laws, there is a way that God created humans to live. And when we live in the way that God taught us to live, it brings life to us. When we don't follow the way that God taught us to live, it brings death. Uh, the, he, uh, the, the English translation of chokmah is wisdom. Okay? So the whole book of Proverbs, for instance, says, a wise, wise is the person who lives this way, and foolish is the person who lives that way. Right? And what it's doing again and again and again is saying, God created us to live like this. God did not create us to live like that. When you take the Navajo principle of Hojo and you put it up against the Hebrew principle of Chokmah, they look, they look surprisingly similar. Because again, what's happening is these two peoples on two different sides of the globe are looking around at creation and recognizing the one who made this all. And they're saying, look, you know, there seem to be ways that lead us to life when we live in harmony with one another and we will live in harmony with the world that God made and we will live in harmony with God. 
And there are other ways that don't seem to lead to that. There are ways that when we are selfish, when we are turned inward, that we get destructive, when we get harmful, and we bring pain and death not only to ourselves, but to our communities and even to our our natural world. Can you imagine if when those first Christian missionaries met the Navajo people, they had not come with rifles and swords. They had come saying, how do we think these people already know God? Because if we take Paul and Romans 1 seriously, they do already know God. Paul said that. Paul said everyone already knows the creator through the creation. And what if they had sat with the Navajo people and asked them to teach them about how they know creator? What if they had listened and had been able to say, wow, you know what? That sounds a lot like the God that we know too. Can you, would you like to hear how this God came among us? N- not to us, not to the Europeans, right? But to, to the Jewish people uh, who were living under the Roman Empire. And how because of what God did through Jesus when God came among us, God was able to liberate not just them, but us too. And now uh, God has given us the privilege of introducing you to Jesus too. How might that have changed the relationship between the Navajo people and the Europeans? How might that have changed the way that the Navajo people understand their own faith, how we understand their faith, how we understand our own faith? Friends, this is, this is a lot like uh, the way Paul approached the Romans and the Greeks in Acts chapter 17 when he went to Mars Hill, where Paul did not condemn their religion, even though, frankly, uh, Acts tells us Paul himself was deeply offended by it. That instead, he listened to them, he learned from them, and then he told them about Jesus in their own language, using their own religious texts. And then Paul's call to them was an invitation. Do you want to know this God that you already kind of know? Do you want to know him better? That's such a different way to introduce Jesus to people. To say, do you want to know this God that you already know, but do you want to know God even better? Now, I know we're still a long way from what happens to people who never meet Jesus. But I do want to pause here and go back to worship because I think this is an important realization for us. It's an important thing for us to stop and recognize that God is already present among us, all of us. That God is already working among us. That we all already have some knowledge of God uh, even when we don't realize it. And so uh, I want to I pause here and hand it back over to Nathan and Guhe and invite you to stand with me again. And I want to return to worshiping the God that we know through creation and the God that many of us know through Jesus himself already. So Paul establishes early in Romans that everyone knows creator, right? So the Greeks know creator, the Gentiles know creator, right? The Navajo know creator. Uh, but then that, doesn't that just mean, okay, they know they know the creator, they don't know Jesus, so they're, like, they're definitely going to hell, right? Is, is, that, is that the answer to this? Well, I don't think so, uh, especially not if Abraham is considered righteous. So uh, turn with us now, just flip or click over to Romans 4. So we're going to skip a little bit of Paul's argument. Uh, but as you're turning to Romans 4, the, the term, and this showed up in the first chapter where we read, um, but it shows up again here, the term righteousness is big for Paul, particularly in Romans. And this is a word that... Uh, means that we're good with God. 
right? It, it's really the word that points us to the state of being saved, right? Once, once God has liberated us, then we are righteous. We are considered uh, forgiven. We are considered restored into a, a right relationship with creator. And, and so anytime you see that word righteous, that's what you need to be thinking about, right? That when, when Paul says that someone is righteous, that means that they're square with God, okay? And so as we read in Romans 4, uh, Paul is going to argue something that, again, today we're just sort of like, yeah, cool. But back then was just, I'm telling you folks, wild, just wild that he would say these things. He'd write them down and mail them out. Uh, he's going to argue that not only is Abraham the spiritual father of the Jews, he's going to argue that Abraham is also the spiritual father of the non-Jews, <laughs> the Gentiles, everyone else. And again, for us, we're like, yeah, that's cool. We all say the Father, Abraham, I, mean, I am one of them. So yeah, 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 we know this, right? But I'm telling you, for the early church, for those people who were the Jewish people, who were the chosen nation, who were the true children of Abraham, for Paul to argue that Abraham is also the spiritual father of the Gentiles was at minimum shocking, okay, if not outright scandalous. Some of the more racist folks among them would have been incensed by this argument. That doesn't stop Paul, okay, very little could. So I want to read with you in Romans 4 and trace his argument here, and then I want to bring that back around to what, that, what implications that has for people who never hear about Jesus, okay? So let's begin in verse 1. Paul says, Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. We would say genetically speaking, right? Literally, biological parent of our nation, okay? What did he discover about being made right with God? Okay? If his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, then he would have something, he would have had something to boast about, right? God chose me because I fill in the blank. But that was not God's way. For the scripture tells us Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. Okay, so what did Abraham do that God decided was good enough? He just believed. Okay? Now when people work, their wages are not a gift, right? When you get your paycheck, you don't send an email to your boss, thank you so much for thinking of me this week. Right? No. It's something they've earned. But people are counted as righteous not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. David also spoke of this when he described the happiness of those who are declared righteous without working for it. Then he goes back and quotes a psalm. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sins are put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of sin. Okay? Now, this, is this blessing only for the Jews, or is it also for the uncircumcised Gentiles? This is the question, right? This is the question. Does God only forgive the sins of the chosen people, or does this apply to everybody? Well... We have been saying that Abraham was counted as righteous by God because of his faith. But how did this happen? Was he counted as righteous only after he was circumcised? Or before he was circumcised, right? Was it only when God was like, well, let's see if you're really committed. Okay, you are. All right, good, good enough. Or was Abraham already considered righteous before he did anything? Okay, clearly. God accepted Abraham before he was circumcised. Circumcision was a sign that Abraham already had faith, and God had already accepted him and declared him to be righteous, even before he was circumcised. 
And this is where he, this is where he does that thing where you're just like, what are you, you are so crazy, but I love it, right? So Abraham is the spiritual father of those who have not been circumcised, right? He's the spiritual father of the circumcised, duh. Also the spiritual father of those who have not been circumcised. Why? Well, they are counted as righteous because of their faith. Okay? Paul argues here that what made Abraham righteous was him believing God is who God says God is. Was him committing himself to God's path when God said, hey, you want to go somewhere you've never been before? And Abraham's like, uh, yeah. And God says, great, you're in. Now, by the way, we have a minor surgical procedure. What came first was Abraham's faith. God did not say, so here's the plan, Abraham. Uh, minor surgical procedure, uh, descendants and slavery, ten plagues Red Sea, uh, kingdom, exile, uh, Jesus, died on the cross for your sins, raised from the dead on the third day, do you believe, and ask me into your heart. None of that. God just said to Abraham, follow me. And Abraham said, okay. And God declared him righteous. And Paul says, when it comes to the Gentiles, that's still how God works. My friend Tom, who's a pastor as well, he says it this way. He says, God holds us accountable for how we respond to the amount of revelation that we have received. God holds us responsible for how we respond to the amount of revelation that we have received. Abraham got very little revelation. He responded to it, and God said, you're righteous, okay? I, born in the third pew in a Baptist church, okay, got a lot of revelation. And I'm held accountable for how I respond to it. Paul says that everyone has enough knowledge of who the creator is be held accountable for how we respond to it. Okay? Now, that doesn't mean that we all know who Jesus is. Abraham didn't know who Jesus was. Okay? Uh, thousands of years of Abraham's descendants, descendants didn't know who Jesus was. They were justified, they were made righteous, not because they prayed the sinner's prayer, but because they responded to the amount of revelation that they had through God. So when I look at our Navajo, Navajo siblings, I see a number of them for years responded to who they know creator to be and walk in Hojo. Now, did every single Navajo person keep Hojo? No, of course not, right? Does everything, did every single Jewish person who ever lived before Jesus walk in wisdom and not one of them was ever a fool? Of course not. That's why Proverbs talks about fools all the time, Right? This isn't saying like, well, yeah, everyone just gets in and it doesn't matter. Hold hands and sing kumbaya, right? This is saying that God is present to all of us. God has revealed God's self in the way of God that God created us to live. God has revealed that to all of us and we all have the opportunity to respond to that in faith. So that comes back to the other bit of that question at the end, which is like, well, if that's true, then shouldn't we just like not evangelize? 
Shouldn't we give as little revelation as possible so there's not much for people to respond to and then they have a better chance of getting in? And I say, well, you know, if you, if you melt salvation down to like a switch, are you in or are you out, uh, maybe. But I think that's, again, the wrong way to look at it. Because what, what Paul gives to us in Romans is the picture of God as a loving father, a loving creator who wants all of us to be in deep relationship with one another, with our world, and with our creator. And that's so important to God that God entered into human history and became one of us so that we could know God as intimately and fully as possible, so that we could be swept all the way up into the divine mystery that is the heart of the Trinity. And so I think Paul would just be baffled that anyone would suggest that we would settle for sort of lawn seats at the amphitheater when we could be on stage with the band, right? Paul would say, well, when you have, a, when you have an invitation to be part of the show, why would you hang out in the parking lot listening on the radio, right? I mean, yeah, it's still the music, I guess, but you could be part of this thing. You could, you could be part of the divine dance of the Trinity. You could be swept up into the very thing that you were created for. So, yeah, why wouldn't you want to tell someone about that? Why wouldn't you want to extend the invitation that you've already received? Why wouldn't you want people who sort of know God to know God even better? Right? Uh, I think when we frame salvation as a relationship, it changes how we ask that question. Right? If... I, I, I don't know about you, but one of my favorite things is introducing my friends to my other friends. Because I've, like, talked about my other friends before, but, like, meeting my friends is even cooler, right? Because my friends are awesome. I try not to have not awesome friends, right? So um, I love getting to introduce people to other people. I love it when I don't just have to rely on the stories of this person that I care about, but I can introduce them, and they can experience this person who is important to me themselves, Right? That, is, that, is a, that is one of the great joys of my life. And I think that's how Paul is inviting us to think about salvation, how God is inviting how Paul's inviting us to think about evangelism. This is not a question of uh, how, do we, how do we get them to not go to hell? This is a question of how do they already know God? How is God already present and at work in their lives? And do we have an opportunity to get to know God better through knowing them better? And do they have an opportunity to get to know God better through knowing us better, right? Can we, by coming into relationship together and by sharing our lives together, can we come into a deeper knowledge of the God who we already love so much? I know in my bones that there are people in history who have been introduced to Jesus uh, to a false Christ, an antichrist, right? A Jesus that came with a sword in his hand or a gun in his hand and who was colonizing and conquering. And the people on the other end of that rejected that Jesus. They were like, uh, I don't think so. Here's the thing. We also today reject that Jesus. We say that's not the real Jesus. So we agree with the people who didn't want to follow that Jesus in the first place, right? We agree with those people who were conquered and colonized difficult for me to imagine God holding them accountable, uh, or uh, it's difficult for me to imagine God punishing them for rejecting the Jesus that we also rightly reject. Right? There were like 700 scriptures I cut out of this sermon, and uh, I know it's hard to believe, right, because we, we're going a little long, but 
if you go through Jesus's stories about the end or about heaven or hell, just kind of go through them in the New Testament, there's really only one uh, emotion that is relatively consistent throughout all of the stories, and that is surprise, okay? Every time Jesus talks about the end, people are surprised about who is in and who is not in, okay? There are a number of people who didn't expect to be on Jesus' side, who it turns out were on Jesus' side. And there are a number of people who were pretty sure they were on Jesus' side, who it turns out were not on Jesus' side. And friends, this is what I think, this is what I think is going to happen in, in the end. I, I don't think Jesus was, uh, was far off when he made these points. I know that's a hot take from a pastor, right? I think Jesus was right. Um, I think in the end, there are going to be a lot of people who, when they meet Jesus face to face, go, ah, ah, yeah, this all makes sense now. I, I knew you, and I did not realize it was you. And Jesus is going to say, well done, my good and faithful servants. Come into your eternal reward. I think there are also going to be a whole lot of people who are going to be like, wait, where's Jesus? When they're looking at Jesus, because they're looking for the sword-waving, flag-waving, colonizing, conquering Christ, and they're going to meet the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world. And they're going to go, ah, no, I don't want this, this sissy Jesus. Right? And Jesus is going to go, well, I'm... I'm who you got. And then they'll have a choice, right? Do they, do they learn how to follow the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world? Or do they, uh, and this is, we'll talk a lot more about this next week, right? Do they, do they choose the other thing? Because I don't think God's going to drag anyone into the heaven kicking and screaming. But for today... I, I know I probably have raised more questions than I've answered, but I've warned you. So it's your fault at this point if you're still here. Um, today, I think where we're ending as we come to the table is with a Jesus who loves the world more than we often imagine and who is already present with people in ways that we are unaware of, that they are sometimes unaware of. And yet he invites us all to this table. Where we share food and drink, uh, the most basic human needs. To remind us of our common shared humanity. To remind us that we all have the same need of our creator. And to remind us that we're all deep down looking for the same thing, whether we're Jews or Gentiles. And so I want to invite you to the table this morning. Uh, this is not Catalyst's table. This is Jesus' table. It's one that he sets for us, a place that he prepares for us. And so the only thing that's required for you to share in this meal with us is that you're open, that you're willing, that you want to say yes to your creator. Before we receive communion together, I'm going to ask us some questions. I'm going to give you some time to prayer, prayerfully consider them, or if you're with someone that you trust, you can talk through them with them as well. Um, and then after we've meditated on those questions, I'm going to pray for all of us together, and we're going to receive the communion meal together. Here's the first question I want you to consider. Where have I experienced God around me in the world in this last week? Right? Not, I mean, in church, great. Hopefully you experienced God here. Yes, right? But, but out in the world, out in the creation, where have you experienced 
God in the world around you. Now, when have I failed to pay attention to God this week? What has distracted me? What has gotten in the way? Think about the week that's ahead of us. What might prevent me from paying attention to where God is at work this week? Finally, how can I look for God in the world around me this week? Let's pray together. God, you've gathered us this morning that we might see this big, big, big picture of your love for the world, a picture that uh, so motivated your apostle Paul that he had to turn his back on what he knew and what he was comfortable and familiar with and go to the whole world as he knew it, telling everyone about your great love for them and how uh, how they already knew you in some capacity, and what he was doing was just uh, helping them know you even better. What a, powerful, uh, what a powerful image of how your love can change us and shape us and send us into your world. We confess that uh, we often allow our picture of you to be too small, that uh, we struggle sometimes to find how you are at work outside of the, the channels that we've been taught to find you in, like church 
And so we come to your table this morning. And as we do, we receive these elements, these wafers and juice or whatever we've been able to assemble. We pray that as we, we receive them, that they would be a spiritual food for us, that as we, as we consume them, we might be consumed by you, that you might spark our imaginations and that you might open our eyes and ears so that we can find you in these surprising places where you are already at work around the world so that we can join the Apostle Paul in announcing this liberating good news that you've swept us up into. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for making yourself known to us. And thank you for sending us into a world to share that same love. We offer these prayers now when we approach your table in the name of your son, Jesus. The night he was betrayed, this is the meal that Jesus shared with his disciples. And it was at that meal that he broke bread and gave it to us and said, this is my body broken for you, take it and eat it. When the meal was finished, he gave them a cup of wine and he said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins, take it and drink it. And so now we too eat and drink. And as we do, we uh, remember Jesus' death until he returns. Uh, friends, as we're going today, I want to thank all of you who are continuing to give here at Catalyst and those uh, who are continuing to serve. Thank you for helping us to create this space week after week where we can have uh, these incredibly important conversations. Uh, like I already said, but I'm going to say it again, I know that particularly this week and next week, next week, by the way, we're asking if hell is forever. Uh, so another you know, super easy breezy one. Uh, but uh, in all seriousness, uh, the, these questions, I think more than even a lot of the other ones, uh, require more time than we really have on a Sunday morning. And, and that's okay. That's on purpose. I hope that um, this spurs reflection and conversation throughout the week. Uh, these are such important questions. They point us right to the, the core of who God is and what it means to be saved and all of that. And so uh, I hope that you continue to meditate on these things uh, to discuss them together, to continue to wrestle with them. I know I do, uh, and, and I know uh, I've gotten to have the privilege of doing that with many of you already. And so uh, I just want to remind you, these are, not, uh, these are not threats to our faith here at Catalyst. We think that uh, questions that spark better questions are how, how faith works. And so uh, I hope that as you go this week, you, you will continue to meditate on these things, and that as you do, you'll be drawn deeper and deeper into the love uh, and the mystery of who God is. So if you'll stand now, I'd like to dismiss us with a blessing. Uh, Catalyst, as you go this week, would you go knowing that you are going into a world created by a God who loves you before you even knew how to love, and who was present to you even before you knew how to sense that. This God has never abandoned you or turned away from you, and this God never will. So you can go confident that the one who created you and called you is continuing to do a good work in you. And we'll do that until the day that Jesus returns for us. Go in the grace and peace of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We'll see you next week.